The word of God from John. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, 
This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I know that was quite a passage. Would you stand a while longer as we come in this time in prayer? And Father, we're just beggars at your table asking for crumbs. And yet you give us a feast, the bread of life, indeed. And so, Lord, by your Spirit, Would you feed us? Would you create hunger in us? Teach us to see and to love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning and happy new year. My name's Ronnie. This morning, we are beginning a new sermon series on the seven I am statements of Jesus. And our hope is that in this new year, we can grow deeply to know Jesus for who he says that he is. And I say it like that because a lot of people have opinions about Jesus, right? He's he's depicted in many ways. Sometimes he's depicted as a pioneer for human rights. Sometimes he's depicted as a cultural sage preaching tolerance. Sometimes he's depicted as an advocate for the poor. And he's not less than those things, but if that were all he is, uh, you would not know him at all, not even close. So who was Jesus? See, that question is incredibly important. In just a few months as Easter arrives, inevitably television networks will produce a new documentary in search of the historical Jesus. Pro tip, whenever someone adds that adjective historical in front of the name Jesus, what they are suggesting is that the Jesus as he is presented in the Bible is not historical. And nevertheless, There's a lot of interest in this question, and so it's going to be our aim to just let Jesus tell us who he is. I mean, what is Jesus' own self-understanding? So seven times in the Gospel of John, we're going to hear Jesus say, I am blank. And then following each time, he will give us an analogy of sorts to understand how Jesus sees himself and sees his purpose and mission. So today, as we heard, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And then moments later, and I mean just moments, you see a huge defection. I mean, people just quitting on Jesus. Why did that happen? 
Here's why. Perhaps Jesus' most famous sermon in the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, at the very end of that sermon, Jesus gives and concludes with this illustration where he describes seemingly two identical houses. Now, outwardly, they look the exact same, but the difference is one house was built on a rock and one house was built on sand. And then when troubles came and when things got difficult, only one house remained. And so Jesus is always gently bidding us to examine ourselves, like which house are we? Are we truly following Jesus or do we defect when he doesn't play by our rules? So in this very first text in our study in our sermon series, we're going to learn who Jesus truly is. And I am sure that you will be surprised by his unpredictable beauty, but also the seriousness of his claims. And when Jesus tells you who he truly is, hear me, it's going to be hard. It will be hard, but it can be more beautiful than you ever imagined. And as we begin our study, I want to admit that I have absolutely bit off more than I can chew. This text is too vast to get to every detail, but... But it's still important. Jesus is still doing something really big here. And I want you to think of it like this. Have you ever gone to like a vending machine? And then you grab your quarters and you put it in the quarter slot. And even though you put your money in the slot, the coin did not drop. And the vending me- machine continues acting as if nothing has happened. And so what do you do? Well, first, you take your fist and you... You knock the machine hoping to get the coin to drop. And when that doesn't work, second, you need to resort to more aggressive means. You begin to shake the machine. And only when you have disrupted the equilibrium of the machine and changed its complete center of balance, only then does the coin drop. Only then are you able to draw something of value out of the machine. Well, that governing metaphor is how I want you to think about this text. You're the vending machine, and God wants to draw something of profound value. Uh, He wants to draw glory out of you. And because God is insistent and loving, he he will knock. And when that doesn't work, he will shake you. He will redemptively disrupt you until the coin by the Spirit drops. So that is how we're going to think about this text. Knock, shake, and then the coin drops. Let's begin with our first point, the knocking. So our passage begins in verse 35 with Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me shall not hunger And whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And those words seem soft and gentle. They're a far cry from knocking, aren't they? Allow me to give us just a bit of context because this is a whopper of a chapter. So the day before, Jesus had fed 
more than 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And you know that story. It's one of the handful of stories that's uh, written and recorded in all four of the Gospels. And it was a stunning miracle, no doubt. A stunning thing for everyone who saw it. Everyone who had been fed. Everyone who had been a part of that day. And out of deep gratitude or maybe self-preservation perhaps, I imagine, those crowds turned into multitudes. I mean, this Jesus guy is special, no doubt. And so many people started to have thoughts about Jesus. Thoughts like, maybe this is the greater prophet that Moses taught us about. They had thoughts like, hey, maybe we should grab him, go straight to Jerusalem quick and make him our king. We could really use a Messiah to dethrone the the wicked emperor and make him our king. Now, Jesus knows all of this is happening, and so he, he slips away from the multitudes to pray. And then a bunch more, thi- more amazing things happen, like amazing things that night that would happen on the Sea of Galilee. Eventually, the, cry, the crowds would find Jesus again. He knows that they're looking for him because of what had happened the day before with the loaves of bread and the fish. He knows why they are there. They want more food. And so he compassionately greets them with this beautiful and evocative invitation. Earlier in the chapter, in verse 27, he says this. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. In other words, he's saying, stop trying to get your fill from things that go away, but get your fill from things that last, things that can actually truly satisfy you, something that can make you content, but I mean a soul contentedness. See, everything that they had grasped for goes away. It's slipping away. Life is this mad scramble. Day after day, the scramble never ends. Searching and searching, climbing some ladder to nowhere for something, just something to fill us. Jesus said those words to people 2,000 years ago who just wanted a little bit of bread, but those words are still just as piercing to us. You know why? Because the scramble continues. And you feel this in your bones, that we have been made for this all-satisfying life with God, something that lasts, something that we can feast on and really and finally be satisfied. But it is painfully elusive, and it remains just outside of our grasp. And all of our money, and all of our experiences, and all of our grades and great jobs, all of our amazing accomplishments, and all of our projects completed, they're all just stand-ins until that hunger returns again. We feel the immeasurable burden that we have to find lightning in a bottle. And it is exhausting. 
It's like trying to keep water in, in your cupped hands. And you can do it for just a little bit, but the water seeps out. And Jesus knows this about you. And he knows this about these people who are with him. And they were coming for food. And he looks them in the eye and he says, I am the bread of life. And in that moment, he is saying something that is incredibly subversive. And don't they feel it? I mean, they feel that knock. Because with those words, Jesus, Jesus postures himself as some cosmic gatekeeper who has the power to grant what only God can give, eternal life, eternal satisfaction. And so Jesus says, look there in verse 40, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life eternal Zoe, and I will raise him up on the last day. So this is not eternal existence that Jesus is offering. This is eternal Zoe, eternal life of a quality of a higher order. Life that is not just breathing, not just air in your lungs, but it's life brimming with meaning and quality and exhilaration and joy. Because everyone knows that eternal existence is just an analogy for hell. Jesus is offering a quality of life of the highest order that lasts indefinitely. Oh, and I promise you that this is, you guys, indeed the Jesus of history. This is the historical Jesus. His are not words of a mere sage. These are not words of a magician. Jesus understands himself so much more radically. And everyone on that day in that audience knew it. They felt the knock. And how do I know that? Because they started to grumble. Look there in verse 41. They began to explain Jesus away so that they didn't have to deal with the implication of what he was saying. Like, isn't this Jesus the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, like we know them. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this the peasant teenager's child? And Jesus, he kindly implores them not to grumble, saying, I, I know this is hard to believe, but do not defect. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, and I am the bread of life. In verse 49, he continues, he, Jesus tells a story about ancient Israel when they were in the desert. They had just come out of the Exodus, and, and they had no food. And so God sent manna, which is like this bread from heaven. So God sent this manna down to eat each morning. And Jesus says to them, he says, your fathers ate that manna in the wilderness and they died. Verse 50, this is the bread of life. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Listen, when I was young, 
I was very much drawn to the concept of truth. If someone told me that a thing is true, it gave me great confidence. Truth felt sturdy, something that I could stand on, something I could live my life by. But now, and particularly in this city out west, when I tell you that something is true, when I tell you something is true universally, like that it's true, whether you agree with it or not, that it is true, that doesn't build confidence in people anymore. Claims of truth now feel like a weapon to hurt people. Any truth claim feels like a tool to oppress. And listen to me, I understand that. I've actually, I've seen how that has indeed happened. And I'm not here to, to turn a blind eye to that. But when you read and hear these words of Jesus, if you are inclined to say, well, that might be your truth, but that's not the truth. If you have that intuition, the knocking will stop. This text will fall on deaf ears. And knocking, ceasing is the worst thing that could happen. And you most certainly can choose that path. But what you can't do is avoid the mad scramble of this life. That unrelenting nausea of the soul that clamors for something to eternally satisfy you. See, God is at the vending machine gently knocking. But for love, God does not continue only with a gentle knock. As our text continues now, he is fundamentally trying to disrupt your center of gravity by shaking. And this is our second point. Jesus not only says that he is the bread of life, however unobtrusive that might sound, now he says that you must feed on his flesh and drink his blood. And those words hit the original audience just like they hit you. Look there in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, I do not want to sand down the difficulty of those words. Jesus was definitely sifting between the people who just came to him because they wanted something from him, they just wanted food, and the people who came to him because they wanted him. Like, he's sifting and that is not, listen to me, that is not an unloving thing. If you come to Jesus just wanting something from him, wouldn't you want to know it? I mean, if you built your house on sand and its foundations were precarious, like, wouldn't you want to know that? The shaking of Jesus is one of love. So I'm not sanding down his words 
But stay with me, because I do want to give you some context. In the Old Testament, there is this story in 2 Samuel about King David when he is fighting against the Philistines at a time when the Philistines had occupied his hometown of Bethlehem. Now, in David's army, there were these three men who were particularly known for their bravery, and they were ready to do whatever the king asked. Well, after a long day of fighting, David sighs, almost like in passing. He says, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. So there's this kind of nostalgia with that water well from his youth. But of course, it was guarded heavily by the Philistines. But like, sure enough, these three heroes departed at great risk to themselves, broke through the Philistine army, got water from the well, and brought it back to David. But David did not drink it. Instead, he says these words to the Lord. He says, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at risk of their own lives? You know, his wisdom was stronger than his thirst at this moment. See, David did not want to personally benefit from their incredible sacrifice, you see. Now, those words of David are striking because Jews do not drink blood. One of the best-known Levitical regulations about food is that ingesting blood was absolutely forbidden in Israel. And this, of course, is why David used that phrase. To drink the water brought by the men would be like metaphorically drinking their blood because of their risk and sacrifice, and he could not do it. Follow? Now, this is an important clue to understand Jesus when he tells us to drink his blood. It's as if Jesus were saying, If you want to personally benefit from what I am doing, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. If you do this, you will live forever. Jesus was not saying that if you want to follow him, you must become a cannibal. What Jesus means is what David meant. Now think about this. David refused to drink the blood of his comrades That is, he refused to personally benefit from their risking of their lives. However, Jesus, the true Davidic king, he will put his own life at risk. Not his soldiers, but himself. And indeed, he will actually lose it. And his followers will personally benefit from that death. That is, they must drink his blood. They must have their thirst quenched by his death. When Jesus clarifies there in verse 51 in our text, look there, that the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, he's speaking, that giving of the bread, he's speaking about his death on the cross that is to come. 
So by eating his flesh and drinking his blood, the followers of Jesus will have eternal life, life of the highest, most meaningful, exhilarating order. But be warned, be warned. There are other false sources of life that we tend to drink from. There are other things that you can feast upon, but they will make you sick. Several years ago, there was a movie that came out. It was called Unbroken. It was actually uh, directed by Angelina Jolie. The story follows this man whose name is Louis Zamperini. And at one point in the movie, his plane goes down in the middle of the sea, and he and another guy uh, find themselves um, at sea on a raft. They are alone, uh, no protection from the sun, no food. No water for days. Now, at one point, they catch the seagull and they eat it raw and it leaves them vomiting. But then they continue, the, the hunger persists, the thirst persists, and they catch a shark this time again. They eat it raw again, vomit. See, they have no sources of real life. They're dying on that raft until they are rescued and given food. Jesus depicts us in that same way. We are grasping for these false sources of life and it is killing us, leaving us nauseous spiritually. We need to be rescued. We need to be given the true bread of life. Jesus' self-description is incredibly important and relevant. He calls himself the bread of life, and he invites us to contemplate the, the image of eating and digesting. Listen, we are spiritually hungry, but all of us are eating raw seagulls, and it's killing us. And Jesus demands that we feast upon him. Otherwise... Fam, we have no hope for truly living. And our lives, they become anxious and exhausting and at best defined by our grades or our bank account or the performance of our children. We are wasting our lives one purchase at a time, one Netflix episode at a time, one amusement at a time. Do you know what it means to be a Christian? It at least means that we give up these false sources of life and feast upon Christ, the only one who can give you life. And when we'll stop feasting on the seagulls and the raw sharks, on these false sources, the nausea actually will subside and our eyes will be opened to deeper meaning in this life. It will, family, awaken you to the gospel. And so I must ask you, what are you feasting on? Because Jesus stands before all of us saying, I am the bread of life. What are, what are you feasting on? God's not knocking. He is he's shaking. He's shaking us for love. 
And so this passage today gives us a picture of what it's like when God lovingly shakes us, but it goes further. By his spirit, the coin finally drops. And this is point three. I should say it didn't drop, the coin didn't drop for everyone. For some people in this final stage, the teachings of Jesus were just, they were just too much. This is when one's foundation of your home, either on sand or rock, is being exposed, being shore up. And sadly, there was this large-scale defection. Jesus' words, perhaps, were, were too poignant. And many said, look there, verse 60, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Do you take offense at this? I think about those words a lot. Mostly because I know what it is like to struggle with the Lord. Like, I do want to give myself to the Lord, but not all of me. I mean, just up to a certain point. And then... In my weaker moments, I try to explain to God. I try to explain him away with all of my anemic rationalizations. And my objections are not compelling, but they are enough for me to keep God at bay. When the crowd started questioning where Jesus came from, it felt like this effective defense mechanism for their unconquerable spirits. Because listen, they do know where Jesus is from. I mean, they did know his parents and they did know his hometown. And if you say reductive things like, isn't this guy from Nazareth? And if you can convince yourself of that reduction, then it seems like Jesus is embarrassingly overshooting his station in life. If he's just the carpenter's son, then what he is saying is delusional. It's madness. And a delusional Jesus psychologically keeps me safe from actually having to trust his wisdom, particularly when his wisdom contradicts me. And so we make these anemic, self-justifying assertions about Jesus to explain him away. And what is behind all of this, fam? What's behind all of this? It's that Jesus won't be all that we want him to be. See, like they wanted a military leader. They wanted a bread catering aficionado. We want a Santa Claus. We want someone just baptizing all of our choices. We want a genie who makes our longings come true. We want a God who leaves two consenting adults alone. Jesus, but Jesus just won't conform. He won't be the Jesus that people want him to be. And he won't conform to their desires. He won't deal with their problems exactly the way they want them dealt with. And he won't stop saying things that they don't want to hear. And it's, it's frustrating to them. And, and they blame him. And what they don't do is they don't look at themselves and ask, what if this Jesus, the one who we don't want, what if he's really the Jesus we need? But many walked away. It's why we're 
tempted to doubt and walk away too. But if Jesus is who he tells us he is, the bread of life, wouldn't it make sense that he would baffle us? I mean, if he's truly God, wouldn't it be, wouldn't he be much deeper than our deepest thought? I mean, if he were small enough to be understood, could he be big enough for us to worship? It's in that sacred space, like when we settle in submissively into this mystery of God, it's in that space we have surrender. Surrender that says, I can't, I can't think my way through this, Lord. And Jesus knows this more than you know this. It's why Jesus perpetually sounds like a Calvinist. Jesus understood the incomprehensibility of God and the inability of man way before John Calvin was ever saying anything like it. Look at verse 63. It is a spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then he continues in verse 65. This is why I told this is Jesus speaking. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And with those hard and strange words, it felt like the last of those who had just come to Jesus looking for bread, those who had built their homes on sand instead of rock, those foundations were, they were all revealed and they all appeared to leave. Except the 12. Except the 12. And then in verse 67, Jesus asks the 12, do you want to go away as well? And whenever Jesus asks a question, he's not asking because he doesn't know the answer. Jesus knows the answer to every last question he's ever asked, but he still asks them anyway. And not for him, but for us. So that we will think on it. So that we will begin to put the deepest and most important things inside of us. He asked the question as a means of overcoming our powerlessness to believe. And so he asks, do you want to go away as well? And strangely, wonderfully, with surrender, Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of life. I mean, this is Simon Peter who like wavers at every moment of his stinking life. But on that day, he got it right. And by the spirit, the coin dropped and a deeper glory is being drawn out. And he says, in the last verse of our passage today, 69, he says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are the Holy One of God. I think it's very fitting that in all of the Gospels, Jesus is only called the Holy One of God one other time. 
And that one other time was also in Capernaum, very early in Jesus' ministry. You know who said it? It was a demon who had possessed a man who called him by that title. That demon was terrified for its life in the presence of Jesus. And and this demon screams out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. What is that demon implying? I know that you are the Holy One of God and I know that my fate rests in your hands. And family, look at me. I think that is the precise meaning of Simon Peter's answer as well. I mean, did did, did Peter understand the weight of all of Jesus' words and how they would shape his life? I mean, did Peter understand his life in Jesus and, and their life together? Of course he could not have understood those things, but he heard with faith. And that is what the Spirit used to overcome his powerlessness to believe. And what Peter is understanding and declaring in that moment, what the the coin is dropping, is what you and I must learn too, is that Jesus tirelessly works. Whatever you think he's doing, he is tirelessly working for our good. Everything in our lives, every bit of your tears, he is working tirelessly for our good. And so our fate rests in your hands, O Holy One of God. And I know that this is really hard for us to grasp and to believe. Sometimes we do not want the Jesus who tells us that we're not our own and and that our bodies are not our own and that our stuff and our talents and our gifts And our resources are not our own either. Sometimes it's hard to follow the Jesus who tells us that following him means to deny ourselves. Even the most core parts of what define us to deny those things. That following him means that we are the first to die to ourselves. The Jesus that we wanted, the Jesus that we thought up and invented would not have told us that the good life is actually a life that is given up for the good of others. But Jesus is who he is. And he says what he says. And Jesus and no other one, the true bread of heaven given for the life of the world who means nothing but good for us. That is the Jesus we need, the one who is there knocking and shaking. So if you don't know this Jesus, today is the day to taste and see. And if you do follow him, oh, stay close to him more tightly than ever. And if you have wandered, if you have left and wandered away, come home. Come home and remain in him. Why? Because Peter was right. Jesus alone has the words of life. Life. 
exhilarating life of the highest order. Who can truly make the nausea subside and satisfy you? And not only today, but forever. Amen.